Father, if we know what it is to fear you the way that Paul knew what it was to fear you, we will listen to you. Fearing you, help me to be clear. Help me to be faithful to what's here. And we pray that you'd help all of us, myself included, to sit under your word and to listen to you. Show us the heart of the gospel, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's where we're beginning. What is the heart of gospel ministry? It's a really important question for us as a church. Last week, Paul told us that Christian, a Christian life and Christian ministry will be assessed by the Lord Jesus. That was the teaching of chapter 5, verse 10. Have we given ourselves to gospel ministry in whatever form that takes in our case, or have we given ourselves to something else? What will that day reveal about our Christian life and service? What will it reveal about us as a church? Have we stuck with authentic gospel ministry as a church, or have we wandered off into something else? Maybe something more palatable to the world around us. Now, this heavenly assessment uh, to come clearly motivated the apostle, didn't it? Chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Fearing the Lord, having a deep reverence and respect for the Lord, Paul gave himself to authentic, persuasive gospel ministry. So what is it? What is gospel ministry? What is the gospel the word itself just means good news, which on its own doesn't really narrow it down, does it? In, in Paul's day, as in our day, there were various gospels around. Other messages vying for center stage in the life of any church. Later in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul will bemoan the Corinthians' willingness to accept what he calls a different gospel from the one they accepted from him. Presumably a very Corinthian gospel, a, a gospel all about outward appearance. You see that phrase there in 5 verse 12, a gospel from those who boast about outward appearance. And Corinth loved outward appearance. And so the most popular speakers and the most popular ideas and messages would be those focusing on outward appearance, what the world found impressive, a superficial gospel a fool's gold gospel. You know about fool's gold? It's called fool's gold because to the untrained eye, you could hold it in your hand and it would look like gold, but you take it along to a trader and you'll be disappointed. It looks like gold. It promises much. It delivers little. That was the Corinthians' other gospel, gold on the outside and on the inside just another rock. So here in chapter 5, verses 11 to 6-2, knowing that Paul would one day give account for his gospel ministry, knowing too that the Corinthian Christians would give account for their gospel ministry, fearing the Lord, he takes us to the heart of Christ's gospel. Here's what motivates Paul to preach and to persuade. Here's why the Corinthians should listen to and embrace his message and ministry among them. Here's what's to, to sit right at the heart of our life and ministry here as a church. The heart of the gospel is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul glories in the cross in two related stages. And we'll see these two stages together. The first, the cross is the good news 
of recreation, the good news of the recreating cross. And there's the summary there in verse 17, one of the more famous verses in this letter. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, our world likes the idea of recreation, of becoming a new creation, a, a new creature, a new person. Uh, Madonna has made a whole career out of it, hasn't she? Uh, she's lasted as long as she has in the music industry, in part by recreating her persona every few years. Uh, she suddenly becomes a new artist uh, with a new angle. Our world is full of people looking for a new start, wanting to become a new person in maybe small ways. Uh, soon enough, it'll be time for New Year's resolutions again. New year, new you. I'm going to be different this year. I'm going to eat healthily, join the gym, and actually go. I'm going to end that unhealthy relationship. I'm going to spend less time at work and more time with my family. We love the idea of making a change, becoming new. In maybe relatively small ways, at least joining the gym, eating healthily, but often in what feel very significant ways as well. Maybe one of the more drastic expressions of this at the moment is found in the transgender movement a deep sense that something is wrong, a deep desire to become something or someone new, a longing that the old me dies and a new one is born. But the Bible agrees that we need to become new, but not first of all because we spend too much time at work and not enough time at home or because we're hooked on chocolate digestives or can't be bothered to go to the gym, or, or more seriously because we feel as though we're trapped in the wrong body. The real problem we have is the problem we have with God. He's holy and we're guilty. He's holy and we're selfish. He's holy and we're curved in on ourselves. He's holy and we deserve to be condemned for the way we've lived in His world. And we can try to change our diet and our work habits we can even try to completely recreate ourselves with or without surgery. But whatever we try, we'll wake up the next morning still selfish, still curved in on ourselves, still facing the righteous judgment of God. If only there was a way that I could become really new. If only the old selfish, hell-deserving me could die and a, a new man, a new woman could begin. Here is what so excites and propels Paul. What we can't do for ourselves, Christ in love has done for us at the cross. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us, it compels us, it spurs us on in our ministry because we've concluded this, that one has died for all Therefore, all have died. And here's what he's saying. When Christ died on the cross, which was the focus and the heart of his mission, it was as though everyone who had put their trust in him died as well. All who trust in him share in his death. His death becomes their death. At sinful Simon, for example, at Simon curved in on himself, Simon covered with shame and guilt, Simon deserving God's condemnation in hell, that Simon, all of him, died a death with the Lord Jesus on the cross. 
And in the mind of God, with old Simon's sin paid for on the cross, we'll come back to that, he died. And as Christ rose from the dead, a new Simon rose as well. If anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone has died with Christ and been raised with Christ and now lives in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, a new creation. Think about that. The whole storyline of the Bible is aiming, isn't it, for a new creation? We thought a bit about that last week. A day is coming when Christians will inherit a new body fit for this new world to come. God is going to do for this world what David Atterborough can't. He's going to make the whole thing new, set it free from suffering and decay, a new heavens and a new earth, the world the way it was always supposed to be. Christians will be there. But what Paul's saying here is that because of the cross, the Christian already owns that new creation identity. They've already been spiritually caught up into that new creation, or, or, or the new creation has uh, broken into the present in the church. And Christians are together, new creation, new creatures, a foretaste of the future, a gathering of people made new by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with a new identity and a new purpose. Did you see that there in verse 15? The new purpose of this new identity, verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This new creation identity breaking into the present with the cross radically reorientates a person. It gets to work deep within them, turning them away from themselves and toward Christ. Have you ever tried to grow a sunflower? You know why they're called sunflowers? They turn towards the sun. Wherever the sun is, that's where the sunflower points. And so it is with this new identity. The new me points towards Christ, the sun. The new me makes it my aim to please him. His love controls me, compels me. It governs my life. The new me is so bowled over by his sacrificial love for me at the cross that I'm now to joyfully live for him. You can see, can't you, how this explains the phenomena that is the Apostle Paul. Now, why was he prepared to put up with anything and everything in the cause of the gospel? Why, why did he persevere with these fickle, foolish Corinthians? Why does he go through four letters and several visits and all of that heartache and pain for their sake? Because the cross has changed him. It's changed his motivations. He, he's a new man. He's a new creation. He lives for Christ now. It's changed his outlook. It's changed the way he sees other people. Verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, now I see what a person can become because of the cross. I see the glory of what a new person the Christian is. I love the gospel, he says, because it isn't about superficial change. It doesn't just make this life a little more comfortable before you die. This is about a whole new creation. And we become new at the cross. Now, before we move on, let's think about what this means for us. First of all, if, if you're not yet a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what Christianity is about. Now, this church that 
you're in today, at which you're very welcome. The people, you understand, not the building, this is a gathering of a new humanity. And you won't see that on people's face. We don't suddenly get a glow the moment we put our trust in Jesus, though it will be obvious when Christ comes back. But the oldest, frailest, bent-over Christian here is a member of a new people with a new identity, a new purpose, a gloriously new future with the Lord Jesus. And our appeal, Christ's appeal to you is simple. Won't you join us? Won't you become a new creature too? Leave your old life behind. It's only taking you to judgment. Come to the Lord Jesus who died on the cross. Bring with you your old life with its selfishness and sin. It's what we all had to do. Receive from him a whole new identity. Be made new. And to those of us already new in Christ by his grace, let's live like it. What did Paul say of us in verse 15? Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We don't live for ourselves any longer, for our comfort, our security, our popularity. He died so that we might live for him. We might live for his gospel, to share with the world the good news of Christ's loving sacrifice, the sacrifice which recreates, and then secondly, which reconciles. That's the second thing to see here, the good news of the reconciling cross, 5.18 to 6.2. My ministry, says Paul in verse 18, is the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? It's making peace between two parties, making peace between two warring nations, uh, between a, a warring married couple, between two friends who've become enemies. Reconciliation means making peace And in order for there to be peace, the thing that drove them to war must be dealt with. The thing that drove the married couple apart must be addressed. The the trigger for the international conflict must be addressed. So it is with God and man. If we're to enter a state of peace with God, if we're to be made new with a new identity and a new purpose and a new happy relationship with God, the issue between us must be dealt with. The issue of our sin And that, says Paul, is what the cross of Christ is all about. Look with me at verse 19. That is, he writes, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God has done something in Christ on the cross that means he can move past our trespasses. What is it? Well, verse 21 tells us, this is a wonderful description of the cross. Verse 21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's solution to the problem of sin took the form of a great exchange. The Lord Jesus, having led a perfectly sinless life, not a a single bad word or thought or action, became sin, says Paul. He became sin on the cross for our sake. Now, it doesn't mean he became a sinner. He didn't commit his first sin on the cross. He remained spotless. It means that in agreement with his father, he volunteered himself to be treated as though he were a sinner by God so that we wouldn't have to be. There's an old illustration that pitches it well. Imagine this book. 
uh, contains every uh, sinful and evil thing you've ever done in your life. Uh, my book would be large, wouldn't yours? Containing everything I've done wrong, said wrong, thought wrong, public things, secret things, things of which you're ashamed, things you never want anyone else to know about. And every single one of them written down line by line in this book. And just as this a book cuts off the light from my hand, so this sin of mine, this record of my guilt, cuts me off from the God who made me. By nature, a person lives under his righteous condemnation. Here's what Paul's saying. At the cross, as the Lord Jesus died, God took that sinful record from you, and he placed it onto his son and punished it on him. He poured out on his son the justice we deserve to face until justice was fully satisfied. And so what stood between you and God was removed, paved for, opening up the way for a new relationship with God, a new life as a new creature in his new creation. This is what the cross of Christ has done. Although there is another half to the exchange, isn't there? Did you see that in verse 21? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He took our sin upon himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that picture might miss out is what Christ gives us in return. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so perhaps this picture is more helpful. Again, not original to me by any means. Imagine a couple's wedding day. We had a wedding in here on Tuesday. Uh, I have um, no insight whatsoever into the financial situation of the two people who got married on Tuesday. But imagine in this situation, the woman is fabulously rich. And she's led a, a, a very successful business. She's made a lot of money. But the man has made some very bad investments, and he's knee-deep in debt. He's hunted by creditors. He's got no way of paying it off. And at the front of the church, the wealthy woman and the debt-ridden man say to each other, all that I have, I give you. All that I have, I give you. What's his becomes hers, and what's hers becomes his. And so she takes on his debt, and he takes on her wealth. That's something like what's going on here. At the cross, God joins the sinner to the Lord Jesus. God gives our crippling debt to Jesus on the cross, and he gives Jesus wealth of righteousness to us instead. And with our debt paid, our sin forgiven, our punishment spent, God makes peace. Of course, without this exchange, Christ taking our sin on the cross and giving us his righteousness instead, there is no gospel, is there? Without this exchange, this substitution, the cross makes no sense. For example, it makes no sense as an expression of Christ's love unless it actually did something. Unless Christ did something on the cross, it was a very strange way to show his love for the world. If I climb up into the balcony and I throw myself off it to the ground below and announce it as an act of love, you'd find that very strange behavior. Christ's love on the cross wasn't an empty expression. It did something. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. And without that act of substitution, the cross is a nonsense. But because of it, the cross is a marvel. Verse 18, all this is from God. God. 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God. Notice both the purchasing of peace on the cross is from God and the preaching of peace at the cross through the apostles is from God as well. Verse 20, therefore we are, says Paul, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It's still God making the appeal through Paul. God both makes the peace and then proclaims peace. The whole peace process is God's doing from beginning to end. And that proclamation of peace continues today. If you're not a Christian, if your confidence is not yet in the cross of the Lord Jesus, this is God's appeal to you. Be reconciled to God. He's gone to extraordinary lengths for peace. Don't refuse him. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus and find peace with God. You can do it today. Come speak to me afterwards if you want to talk about it more. But here's the really striking thing about this appeal. Who is it for? Who is the you there, do you think, in verse 20? We implore you. The church in Corinth was likely a, a, a real mix of people, and perhaps some of them weren't followers of the Lord Jesus and had become attached to the church in some way, but many of Paul's hearers and readers were. This letter is written, by and large, to people who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're wobbling on Paul's message and ministry. And it's to those wobbly professors of faith that Paul's appeal comes. Isn't that striking? 6 verse 1, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. They were in danger of wasting it, missing it, giving up on the gospel by giving up on Paul's ministry, ditching the supernatural power of the cross for the superficial froth of the super apostles. Why would you do that? If the cross is God's power for the creation of a, of a whole new humanity, the price of reconciliation between God and mankind, why would you ever drift from the power of the gospel and the gospel of the cross? Come back, says Paul. Be reconciled to God and His gospel. Don't wander away from this message, from this ministry. Don't miss the day of salvation after all of God's kindness to you. The quote there in 6 verse 2 is from the, the prophet Isaiah. We read it earlier, actually, didn't we, in Isaiah 49. It's the promise of a day of salvation to come in the future. That day is now, says Paul. Don't miss it. Don't ditch this gospel. Come back. Come join me. Be part of the greatest work in the world. Do some of us need to hear that this morning? For many of us, maybe most of us, nothing I've said this morning is new. Our Christian life began at the cross. We know that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin, to give us peace with God and a whole new identity with him to make us new. But over time, the cross can lose for us some of its wonder. And perhaps because of the, the reaction we find that it gets. That people don't want it anymore, we think. 
People don't want to hear about sin and forgiveness, about war and peace. And when I try to speak about the cross, they look at me as though I'm mad. And, and so over time, we can, if we're not careful, just go quiet on it. We turn the volume down on the cross of the Lord Jesus and his sin-bearing, wrath-bearing death. And we begin to talk up other aspects of God's truth, aspects that go down better with the world around us. We talk more about how God makes our lives better here and now rather than how he saves our lives for eternity at the cross. Paul's gospel is the gospel of the cross. And back in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul had told the church that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because only the cross can save which means that this gospel of the cross must be, mustn't it, at the heart of our ministry and our message as a church. The world can find the fool's gold of superficial ministry anywhere. They can find a more superficial message all over the place. They can find life advice and positive messages and motivational talks. What the world needs more than anything else is this gospel. And God proclaims it through us. So come, be reconciled to God and His gospel again. Come back to this message and this ministry. Join Paul as God's ambassador. Be God's mouthpiece to the world He so loves. Let's work together to preach the power of the cross, and let's see what God will do. Let's pray together.